this is the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and here comes the film geeks hello and welcome to this week's the film file i'm lee ford i'm andy beacon we're very confident about who we are this week aren't we we are more confident about who we are than we are uh, we were last week I, I listened back to last week's show as i always do and i thought yep got a sleepy head on this time last week and uh, we weren't sure who we were but this week i'm pretty certain we know who we are andy how are you um i'm all right i'm at the end of my week off i'm back to work tomorrow i'm quite tired uh, but I've done nothing all week. Nothing, sir. Nothing. Except for, you know, watch lots and lots of films and loads and loads of TV shows. It's like it's like a perfect week for me. I, uh, I've i not had a perfect week, of which more will be talked about later. Uh, in fact, it's been a, a, a dreadful week. And again, I'll, I'll talk about that in a little while. So with the time that I've had off work, uh, I've done very little. I haven't felt like it for, again, reasons that will become clear if you want to stick around. But uh, uh, yeah, not not been feeling it this week. Even meeting you for the cinema, despite the snow, and that's the one thing we did have an awful lot of this week was snow. We knew it was coming, yeah. but of course, as ever, we were caught on the hop. No gritting or anything like that. And Thursday was snowmageddon. Um, Friday, yeah. we were we were snowed in in our particular bit of the world. Um, it was it was over a foot deep. Yes, uh, I took a trek into work to go and uh, watch a couple of films on Thursday. Um, it normally takes me one hour 20 if I walk into town from where I live. It took just over two hours, wow. which I thought was quite good given the conditions. But talking about like half past eight in the morning and the roads were empty. Even the main roads were absolutely empty. And they're normally gridlocked, the main roads yeah. that are walked down at that time of the day. I, I love a walk in the snow. I've said this on previous podcasts over the years, whenever it's been snowing, that I love going out in the snow. I love kicking up the snow. So for me, it was just like a nice relaxing, although stressed to the calf muscles over the past two days as a result of it, walk uh, to go and see what were a good film and a bad film. Uh, I'll talk about them later. <laughs> I think I can guess, and I think you may have, uh, what's the what's the polite term, in case children are listening, peed on my fire a little bit with one of those choices. <laughs> I thought I was looking yeah. forward to it, but I think I'm guessing. I think I'm doing the guessing game in advance, uh, yeah. having seen the reviews elsewhere. Tickets for your division went on sale this week. I, I didn't manage to get one. Well, I've been reading your uh, your issues, <laughs> shall we say. I'm not going to use yes. the word rants. Issues with trying to get Eurovision tickets. And it's not a new thing that Ticketmaster, who were the ticket sales for this, are notorious for being able to fail at the one job that they're supposed to do, sell tickets. Because you see it any time that there's concerts, events, whatever, people getting kicked out of the site, yeah, the site crashing, etc. They can't handle the one job that you do. But unfortunately, they more or less hold a monopoly on ticket sales. There are other ticket sales companies, but they're not of the size and scale as Ticketmaster. And so as soon as they said that Ticketmaster was going to get used for Eurovision tickets, I knew it was just going to be a joke. And even though I was on the site an hour before it, waiting to join the queue, it got to the queue section. I logged in. Please reset your password. Why? Why are you choosing this point in, in time when you know that you've got a huge thing? Loads of people suffering that one as well, getting like suddenly asked to reset their password. Right. Got in, joined the queue after multiple attempts of the website crashing, got into the queue and watched it starting to count down. And he said there was over 2,000 people ahead of me. Okay. I was in, in the queue for about 15 minutes. It got past midday when the tickets actually went on sale. I was like, great, great. I'm still in the queue. And then it disconnected me for inactivity. Yeah, because while I'm in the queue, I'm not going to be changing the website page. Thank you, Ticketmaster. Your website just kicked me out. Couldn't get back in that queue. Took about half an hour. Got back into it. Back over 2,000 people. It was an absolute joke. Um, nothing personal, Andy, but I, I know it happened to lots of other people. Oh, yeah. I, I was I was had the windows open for Ticketmaster on one of my screens. And I was watching all the chatter about it on social media. And everyone was in the same boat. It was atrocious. And you get to about, I got to about 600 in the queue for the final. And then it popped up an alert saying all tickets have now sold out. I still stayed in the queue just on the off chance that someone had got to the um, basket section and then decided to delete. And once it finally got to the end, all that was left was a VIP booth for £360 each. And it was an absolute right. joke. But whilst I was in that queue and watching stuff on, on social media, 
I was also watching the uh, secondary ticket sales websites, such as, you know, eBay and the ones that spe- specifically for ticket reselling. And that what starts popping up? People selling tickets for £1,000, £2,000, £5,000, and even one person, even £12,000 they're trying to get for a VIP booth one. And I was just thinking, and this is why Ticketmaster fail, because they don't have measures in place to stop bots from being able to fleece the website. No, I think that's, it's it's a disgusting behaviour. It's it's a joke. Resellers who are profiting on it to stop normal fans from being able to get tickets, but Ticketmaster having nothing in place to prevent this or stop it. Yeah, yeah, very disappointing. I I, I was following it kind of on your behalf on Twitter and, and seeing exactly exactly the same issues that you were talking about. You'll just have to watch it with the rest of the world on TV. I'm going to be sat watching it at home like I normally do it here. Make a party out of it. I'm fine with it. It's that. in your hometown. Yeah, but aside from that. So uh, socials, talking of socials, uh, how did we do last week with our social challenge? Okay, uh, we've had some responses to it. Uh, the question last week was, what movie score or theme do you feel is your favourite piece? One that captures the moment of the film perfectly and really affects you emotionally or ramps up your excitement. John, at UK Film Nerd, said, can't pick a favourite, but the first that comes to mind is Mona Lisa Overdrive by Juno Reactor and Don Davis for The Matrix Reloaded. They had the soundtrack long before the film came out and fell in love with that track, knowing that it was a huge action car motorway set piece. When they saw the final film, they enjoyed what they saw and heard. It's a fantastic piece. Yeah, the, all, pretty much all of the Matrix score really fits those films. Mm. Regardless of what your opinions are of the films as they went along, you can't deny that the music by Don Davis and Juno Reactor absolutely stunning and really captures that techno aspect. Uh, Ken told us that, well, he said that the question was an interesting one, difficult to narrow down. Maybe The Landing by Justin Hurwitz from First Man. Really good choice. You know what? I listen to that a lot in the car. I think it's a beautiful piece of music. Uh, I've not got the rest of the album. I've just got that one track and it, it it's a lush piece of music. And I said to you when I uh, when we were talking about First Man, how much I thought that entire sequence, the aspect ratio change and that amazing piece of score, I found utterly, utterly emotive and purely emotive. I thought the way it was shot yeah. and, and that piece of music was was beautiful. Yeah, uh, as Ken says, it has a melancholic quality that complements Armstrong's emotional arc in the scene and the film as a whole. In short, it gets me in the feels. Cinematic Sound Radio podcast posted a link to the Millennium Falcon asteroid field scene from Empire Strikes Back, saying this right here is the single greatest film cue ever written. It's a ballet amongst the stars. It's powerful, witty, lyrical, exciting and romantic all within four minutes. And I cannot agree more because when I had the soundtrack of this on tape, and when I used to do my paper round all those years ago, I used to be listening to the this Millennium Falcon asteroid scene over and over again. It's just a beautiful piece of music. It's my favourite piece from all of the Star Wars films. Mine was always the TIE fighter sequence in, in the first, in New Hope. You know, when they are uh, leaving the Death Star and yes. both Han and Luke are in, in the guns. That piece of music that went with that was the one that kicked in for me every time. That's, that's the one that goes, dun, dun. Dun 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 dun. Say, I I know all the theme tunes off the top of my head. Carl simply replied with, "Goodness, how long do you have?" So I guess they can't narrow it down. Kristen Plant, John Murphy, Adagio in D minor from Sunshine, the end scene. Yeah, and that's made me move Sunshine further up the list of deep dives that we're going to get round to because man, that reminded me how good that is. Uh, I know that you threw in Superman by John Williams, the Bond theme, Carpenter's Escape from New York. So many to choose from. Yeah. Uh, for Carpenter, you know, it's it's uh, Escape from New York, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, Halloween, those those three stand out. I've got a Carpenter soundtrack album and uh, I listen to it in, uh, a lot. Superman the movie is just one of those pieces of music that, that evokes so many memories mm. and it just does exactly the right thing when you hear it just tells you what kind of a movie you're going to get. Wonderfully heroic. It's never been bettered um, by any superhero movie. It is a proper theme. Um, Harvey Morton suggested On the Nature of Delight by Max Richter, which is in his all-time favourite film, Arrival, but also loved it in The Last of Us a few weeks ago. Ah, yeah. Oh, well spotted. Time by Hans Zimmer always affects me emotionally too, as does Cornfield Chase in Interstellar. Uh, so a, a fan of Zimmer's work with uh, Nolan there. 
Also, Married Life from Up. Yes, very much so. Very much a yes there. Um, Craig writes, Time from its inception. Got another thumbs up from Craig. Stevie Dan, 1969. Always love the scene from the movie Grand Prix. Maurice Shaw is a genius. Uh, the winning the race. Except his theme Grand Prix. for uh, Never Say Never Again. Yeah, let's, let's just... We like to pretend that film doesn't exist as a whole. <laughs> Andromeda XS. Death is the Road to All by Clint Mansell from The Fountain has always been their favourite. The whole oh, soundtrack is incredible. It is. I like Clint Mansell a lot. Galactus took time to think about this and then decided on Pan's Labyrinth, Pan's Lullaby. Both parts beautiful and terrifying, used perfectly throughout the film. But for me, it's the use at the end, which is just breathtaking. And might be a bit silly, but the Avengers theme in Endgame I love comics and love comic book movies, but nothing has really hit like the Avengers music. I'm there with them. I'm ready to kick Thanos's ass. An oldie, but one of their favourites, Braveheart, perfectly encapsulates the Celtic scenery. It's beauty, but also the fire of rebellion. V for Vendetta, the 1812 overture use in there. Perfect song for the film and beautifully explained by V. Yes, yeah, yeah. And hey, there's a, a great choice. You've got the touch from the 1986 Transformers animated movie. Yeah. I'm there with you Uh, Reprised by Marky Mark Wahlberg In (laughs) Movie Nights You got the touch I'm just going to throw in one last one And that's probably everything by Lelo Schifrin Because I think Lelo Schifrin was a genius composer But Mm -hmm. especially his theme to Enter the Dragon I'm going to throw in Now, because I've been re-watching them this week It's reminded me of how much emotion The score for Lord of the Rings rises in me and particularly Howard Shaw wasn't Howard it? Shaw, and particularly the 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 key piece of music, the dun 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 dun, dun, dun and wow, it's just a great piece. It captures the whole thing. The whole score from start to finish covers every aspect of all the parts of Middle Earth beautifully. But that just it inspires me with hope for the bleakness of the situation that's going on when the fights start and the battles start and that music pumps in. You know that the the small few have a hope to take down the millions of orcs that are coming at them. It's a beautiful score. So what's this week's social challenge? Well, as we know, it's Andy's birthday and our deep dives have been reflecting the year of his birth. And also, uh, I must add, it's my other half's birthday on the day of this recording. And it got me thinking, what is the significant film from the year of your birth? So in the year you were born... What was that one significant film? And have you seen it, that significant film? Answers over to us on your favourite socials, and we'll read them out next week. So what have we got on the show for you this week? Following the trend of Andy's birthday year, what came out in 1973, we'll be looking at Theatre of Blood this week as part of our deep dive. We've got reviews of... Open at Cinema, all three films this week. Scream 6, 65... And the much-anticipated Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I can't wait. We've got gossip, we've got chat, but before any of that, we've got the box office and the news. So, looking at box office, the big opener this week is the latest in the Scream franchise. And I'm suspecting, from what we know on the US figures alone, that this have kicked its way, cutting and screaming, into the number one position. Uh, But where does that leave Creed 3? And has Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania dwindled down to non-existence? Yeah, it's all about masked killers this weekend at the box office. Scream 6 opened into first place in the US, taking 44.4 million. Creed 3 drops down into second place, taking another 27.3 million. New sci-fi that we'll be talking about later, 65 opens in third place with 12.3 million. Ant-Man and the Wasp, just about clinging in there in fourth place with 7.1 million and cocaine bear at 6.2 million rounding off the top five us here in the uk it's pretty much more of the same scream six opens in first place taking three million creed two is in second place taking another 2.7 million 65 in third place 1.27 million then puss in boots the last wish is still drawing in audiences in the UK, 902,000 to take fourth place. And Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, barely holding in at the fifth spot with 722,000. So that's the box office. What have we got for you uh, news-wise, Andy? We spoke about The Exorcist last week, and we briefly mentioned towards the end of that about The Exorcist revival film from David Gordon Green for Bloomhouse. 
we can confirm that filming has now wrapped on this film, which is the first of a planned trilogy. Ellen Bernstein, as we said last week, is reprising her role as Chris McNeil for this legacy sequel. And Green gave us the recent Halloween revival, which started off strong, but ran out of steam over the three films. But it's worth noting that the Halloween revival wasn't initially planned as a trilogy, and they stretched the story out in order to make it a trilogy once the first one was a success. Whereas this one, the planning is a trilogy from the offset. So hopefully the story will hold well over three films. Oscar nominee Leslie Odom Jr. also stars in the lead role of a father who's got a possessed child whose desperation leads him to track down McNeil to find out how she managed to get someone to perform an exorcism. And Green co-writes the script with his writers of Halloween, Scott Teams, Danny McBride and Peter Sattler. I don't have any problem with a legacy new take on The Exorcist. It's announcing that it's going to be a trilogy from the get-go. So you're going to see film one and you know that the story, the story is not complete. Now, if you kind of like it, it means you've got to stick around. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know. That's where I have a problem with this. Already announcing that that it is a trilogy without defining what the story is. Um, does it need to be a trilogy? It, it's well, we saw that. We saw that with DC. Oh, everything yeah. will be wrapped up in the next movie, in the next movie, in the next movie. And and if it if it doesn't, if it's a box office flop, then potentially we don't get to see it. It's possible that James Gunn might actually be directing the Superman legacy film as well as writing. Yeah, I heard that. Um, at least according to comics writer Tom King, who <laughs> I'm not sure if he accidentally revealed this in an interview this week, but the clip that was shared has now been taken down since people have picked up on his wording. And neither Warner Brothers Discovery or Gunn have commented yet. But what he said in the interview, James Gunn is a super nerd and he's super creative. He's both the writer and director of the Superman movie, and he's sort of the creative force behind all this. And he reached out to a group of screenwriters and myself, fantastic, amazing, whose names he's put out there, and to work on making these movies. The fact that they've took it down, whilst people went, hang on, you've said he's a director as well, suggests to me that this might not quite be in the can yet, but this is the intention. We know that James Gunn has been very passionate about the Superman thing. He was brought in to write it, apparently, before he was even hired by DC to take out, take control of producing. So it would make sense that if he's got that much passion for it, he'd want to deliver it himself. It was also pointed out by one of the DC stars that what has been mentioned as part of the, the release pattern is only a very small part of what the what the plan is. Yeah, he's uh, gone over this past week, was directly asked, uh, are there any other projects in the first phase for DC? And he's basically said that they've only revealed about half of the things that are coming. So there's loads of stuff. It, you know, Some of the other stuff will be video game tie-ins. Some of it will be comic book tie-ins. Some of it will be animated tie-ins. But there might be one or two surprise films that get added into there. Uh, sticking with DC, filming on Matt Reeves's anticipated sequel to The Batman has now got a production date of November the 23rd to start filming. Yes, I mean, it was always on the cards. We know at the moment they are working on the Penguin series. Uh, there was a couple of release shots that landed this week. But of course, the next big one is going to be the Batman Part 2, uh, of which we do not have a title for at this stage. Or we don't know where it's going to shoot. It'll be shot in your hometown, a lot of a lot of the last one. So Yeah, they used Liverpool because of the architecture there. It's not planned to be released until October 2025, which gives them plenty of time to film everything required. And the first film no, famously had to stop and start due to the pandemic getting underway. But this time around, they should be able to just get a whole production done in one go. We don't know any details about the story. All that we know is that, you know, Robert Pattinson's going to be returning. We don't know if Joker's going to be a key thing. We know we had that little tease deleted scene after the last film, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going with the Joker this time around. We'll see. Maybe it's going to spin off some ideas that are brought into the Penguin spin-off series. So we'll probably have more idea once that project has uh, been released. A couple of fascinating and make of it what you will shots landed from some footage taken during the shooting of the second Joker movie, uh, which looks very intriguing in which Arthur is being chased by the Joker. Make of that what you will. Uh, it's still a, it's in production. Still a long way to go yet. More news when we get it. Talking of DC, and we hoped and we thought this would, would happen. Batman, Cape Crusader series, uh, originally destined for HBO Max, and then it got the chop. This is the animated series, 
brought to us by Bruce Tim at the helm. Well, we'd hoped and we kind of sussed that it would get a new home and it's been picked up by Amazon. Yes, uh, JJ Abrams and Matt Reeves are executive producing on this series and it's Bruce Tim wanting to recapture the spirit of his 90s classic series, but giving it a modern, give, giving it a modern edge, linking closer to the more recent revival of the Batman. Comic book scribe Ed Brubaker is amongst the creative team and he runs the writer's room there. He reportedly serves as Tim's right-hand man on the 10-episode first season, so expect it to be packed with comic lore. And if it just taps into even even 50% of the essence of that 90s series, it's going to be the best animated show of the past two decades. Uh, Just as as an aside to that, Andy, I think we've mentioned this, that they are bringing out a box set a 4K box set of the Superman yes. movies, which includes the Donica, and I think we mentioned it on the show. But they are also doing, as part of that, remastered versions of the great Max Fleischer Superman cartoons from the uh, 1940s, which are beautiful pieces of artwork. That's the best way to describe them. They are, they are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the stories aren't up for much, but that's not the point. It's, it's just how wonderful uh, constructed they were. Yet Discovery have remastered the original animated Superman shorts, and plan to release them May the 16th on digital HD and also on Blu-ray and HD 4K. Um, Bob Iger has been speaking about Marvel and Disney this week at a Morgan Stanley conference. And in regards to Marvel, he indicates that the days of heroes getting multiple sequels might be numbered. And this has caused a bit of a backlash online with people saying that, oh, you, you should stick to your older characters that are more established, ignoring the fact there's plenty out there. As Iger says... There are 7,000 characters. There are a lot more stories to tell. What we have to look at with Marvel is not necessarily the volume of Marvel stories we're telling, but how many times we go back to the well on certain characters. Sequels typically work well for us. Do you need a third and fourth, for instance, or is it time to turn to other characters? And I'm completely with him on this because, let's be honest, the most recent sequels haven't quite lived up to the expectation. Quantumania was an absolute joy for both me and Lee, but general audiences didn't take to it. Yeah, but Thor, Love and Thunder, and Doctor Strange. Both felt that they were lacking something that those earlier films had. So the 7,000 or more characters out there that Marvel they could use for Marvel, why not dip into that well? Why not start showing some other things? Uh, turning his attention to Star Wars, Iger then said that Disney is being very careful about that franchise's future, especially on the film front. Uh, we know that this week they cancelled off the Patty Jenkins and Kevin Feige's Star Wars film projects. But Taika Waititi's and Damon Lindelof's are apparently still in pre-production. But he said that Star Wars, we made three what we call saga films, which is obviously the successors to George Lucas's first six. They did very well at the box office, tremendously well, as a matter of fact. We've made two so-called standalones in Rogue One and Solo. Rogue One did quite well. Solo was a little disappointing to us. That's an understatement. Um, It gave us pause just to think maybe the cadence was a little too aggressive. And so we've decided to pull back a bit. We're still developing Star Wars films. We're going to make sure that when we make one, it's the right one. So we're being very careful out there. Oh, that's good. This is all about what we've been saying over the past couple of months, that Disney are focusing on quality over quantity. And that's the motto for all of their franchises that they hold going forwards. They're not just going to churn out stuff just for the sake of getting content. They want to make sure that the content stands up. And moving on to Marvel on TV, Daredevil Born Again has a director announced for the first episode. Michael Cuesta, who directed the pilots for two of Showtime's most famous series, Dexter and Homeland, was announced this week. The 18-episode Daredevil series, which is double the length of most streaming series, will begin production this month in New York, shooting throughout the year well into November. Cuesta is said to only be directing the pilot, and other Helmers will be announced later and will handle blocks of episodes each. So, same way that in the comics, one writer works over a block of stories, They're going to work with that with one director does a block. One director does a block. The new series will see at least three of the original stars of the TV series return. Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock, Daredevil, Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk, Kingpin. And this next one was a big surprise. Yep. John Bernathal, who was revealed this week as returning as Frank Cashel, the Punisher. I wonder how they're going to do it because there's been such backlash over the the Punisher's logo due to right-wing especially police groups, that um, almost taking possession of that piece of imagery. So I'm, I'm interested to see where they go with the Punisher. It's become a hot potato over at Marvel with the comics where they've changed the uniform. Also starring in the Daredevil series is Michael Gandolfini, Michael Gaston, Margarita 
Levieva and Sandrine Holt. The latter will take on the role of Wilson's wife, Vanessa Fisk, from Islet Zora, who was in the original series. It has been confirmed that Deborah Ann Wolfe and Eldon Henson won't be returning as Karen Page and Foggy Nelson, whether or not the recasting or whether their stories are told and they're being left to the sidelines. We don't know at this point in time. I thought he was a great Foggy Nelson and they managed to give him the look of Foggy Nelson and, and sort of the responsibility that Foggy Nelson has as someone who knows Daredevil's identity. Mm. So I'm, I'm disappointed. Um, not so much with the return of Karen Page. I thought her story was, was, was told out, to be honest. We're hotly anticipating it. We are wondering whether it can stand up to 18 episodes because we're in an era that shorter series has seemed to work better. Is it going to drag it out unnecessarily? We'll see. I was hoping it doesn't. I have more faith with it at Disney Plus than I did so with Netflix because they wrote eight-part series that went on for 13 episodes. And, yes. and I think if you're planning out at this stage to do an arc over over 18 shows, then you're planning something bigger. And plus, they've got the budget to be able to go bigger as well. Whilst out promoting 65 this week, the film's producer, Sam Raimi, has revealed that a potential sequel to his 2009 dark comic horror, Drag Me to Hell, is in development. Oh, I like that. Raimi, along with writer-directors Scott Beck and Brian Woods, participated in a recent Reddit AMA and was asked if there's a chance for a sequel or another story related to the film. And he responded that they're already at work on something. The team at Ghost House Pictures, Romy Adam and Jose Canas, are trying to come up with a story that would work. And I'm anxious to hear if they do. The original film, for those who haven't seen it, track it down. It's a joy to watch. Starred matchstick men breakout Alison Lohman as a young loan office employee who finds herself the subject of a curse by an old Romani woman in desperate straits after Christine refuses to extend her loan. We've not seen much of uh, Alison Lohman since. Yeah, Loman, who'd had quite a run of films from the early 2000s, including small roles in films like Big Fish and White Oleander, started to really hit the big time from 2005 onwards when she started providing voices in animated films such as Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind before heading up to playing Ursula in Beowulf, uh, Things We Lost in the Fire, where she played Kelly, and then in 2009 was in both Gamer and Drag Me to Hell. However, after her role in Drag Me to Hell. She retired from acting in 2009, citing her recent marriage to filmmaker Mark Neveldine and her desire to focus on raising their three children. And has since then taught online acting classes and had small roles in three of Neveldine's films. In 2015, she popped up in the Vatican tapes and then in 2016, Urge and Officer Down. But aside from that, she stepped away from being in front of the camera and now helped coach other people to get in front of the camera themselves. But someone someone else who's on the star rise at the moment, I mean, she's been around for a few years, but um, generality you get is everywhere these days, isn't she? Yeah. And now she's circling Tim Burton's Beetlejuice sequel. THR has reported that Burton and Michael Keaton are going to return as director and star respectively, with filming eyeing a late May or early June start in London. The project's budget has not yet been set, which might still impact things. If a deal is made, though, sources for the trade indicate that Ortega would play the daughter of Lydia, uh, the character that was played by Winona Ryder in the original, and there's no word yet on whether Ryder herself might return or if her character is even in the film. And, of course, she will be returning with Tim Burton because it was huge, did great numbers for Netflix, as far as we know, because we know that Netflix is a secret society when it comes to their ratings. But she's returning for a second season of Wednesday. Will Smith is ready to hit the screens again with the fourth Bad Boys film, following that with an action comedy called Fast and Loose for Netflix. After playing low-key, particularly since uh, that incident this that time incident. last year. He's he's now ready for his big return to stardom. We, we know what to expect with the fourth Bad Boys film, more of the same. Fast and Loose, however, follows a crime boss with amnesia who discovers that he's led a double, double identity as a wealthy kingpin and a broke CIA agent, and he's unsure which one of his personalities is the real one. David Leach was originally attached to direct when we first spoke about this last year, but exited when the project was put on hold in April. Once Sony gave the green light for the fourth Bad Boys, however, movement began again on Fast and Loose. And talk of the slap has come up again in recent days with the airing of Chris Rock's live Netflix comedy special last week and this year's Oscar ceremony being held this weekend. Uh, talking of the Oscars, the, as of this recording, we won't have seen the Oscars, so we're leaving that and we'll go into it with some depth next week. Eight years ago, MGM tried to revive the Poltergeist franchise with the Gil mm, Keenan-directed yeah, 2015 Bless film. Him. It came and went, left no impression. 
multiple attempts have been made to recapture the magic of Toby Hooper's and Spielberg's 1982 original. Leave it alone, it's perfect. Well, Amazon aren't listening to you because they've, as we know in recent years, have acquired MGM. And it looks like they're reportedly interesting in trying to resurrect the franchise. Entertainment journalist Jeff Snyder revealed this details on the Hot Mike podcast this week. He says that the franchise the franchise has been named as one of several MGM properties that Amazon is looking to prioritize for new ad- adaptations. I don't mind the idea of a sequel and even a legacy sequel. What I what I don't want is a remake because the, the original yeah. one is, is just so perfect. Don't need the same to- story told again. Jeff Snyder does add that the co- situation will be complicated by the fact that Spielberg would need to be involved. All this stuff is so up in the air, Amazon is still figuring it out. What we do have here in MGM, what we want to do with it and how we want to do it is what they're all considering at the moment. Franchise it, make a TV series approach of it, try it, but don't do what the 2015 did and just do a pointless, almost shot-for-shot remake. which brought nothing to the table. Even though it had the great Sam Rockwell in it, it it, it didn't didn't do anything. The the scares weren't there. It It was like a greatest hits album as performed by a cover artist. Whenever you talk about remakes and things getting remade, you'd always see the arguments as like, why do they keep remaking good films? Why don't they remake a bad film? Which has made it quite interesting seeing people responding to this next bit of news online with the exact reverse opinion. The cult classic, The Room, from 2003. (laughs) Yes, seen this story. Is getting a remake. And everyone's jumped on board to say, why are you remaking a piece of rubbish? It's like, what do you want? But what gives me hope for this is former Better Call Saul, and we love him, actor Bob Odenkirk, is in the lead role that Tommy Wiseau played in that original film. He's going to be playing Johnny, the central role originated by the film's writer and director. The original film opened to terrible reviews, poor attendance, but has become one of the biggest cult midnight films since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Odenkirk confirmed the report after it got released, saying on Twitter, this is real, this is true, and let me tell you, I tried my best to sell every line as honestly as I could, and I had a blast. And he has reassured people that he's not going to be trying to act like Tommy Wiseau. He's giving it his own take, and he's going to try and take it semi-seriously while he's making it. Marvellous. Did you see the uh, Did you see the story about the making of, of, of The Room with James Franco? Yes. I liked, which I thought was great. It was a joy of a film. Uh, but this new version of it, it's reportedly hails from Acting for a Cause, an organisation that raises money for charitable causes by asking for donations tied to digital performances with actors like Alex Wolf, Zazie Beetz, Justice Smith working with them. In this case, the Room remake seeks to raise funds for the non-profit organisation, oh, Amfar, which does AIDS research. A photo from the project is up at Instagram and the majority of the production was reportedly shot on a green screen with Odenkirk having shot it already in January. So this film is already in post-production and it is raising money for a good cause. If there's ever a reason to seek out a remake of a film, this is one. So that's the news for this week. But sadly, we have uh, some mentions and we we don't like doing this. Of course, we don't. Um, this week, one is a very personal one. Uh, but first, Andy... Robert Blake. Yes, uh, actor Robert Blake passed away this week of heart disease at the age of 89. Passed away on Thursday at his home in Los Angeles. Uh, Blake was best known on screen for the Emmy-winning role as an undercover cop in the popular 1970s TV series Beretta. Over the years in films, his most famous film film role was in Richard Brooks's 1967 adaptation of Truman Capote's novel In Cold Blood, in which he and Scott Wilson played the young killers of an entire Kansas family. And other films that were on his list were things like Money Train, Blood Feud, PT-109, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Houston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, David Lynch's Lost Highway, and he also had guest starring roles in numerous TV shows of the 50s and 60s, especially Westerns. And you've got to see his 1960s turn, which was a, is a phenomenal film, uh, an absolute classic of 60s filmmaking, Electric Light in Blue. Um, he survived by his children and his former wife, actress Sandra Kerr. Also this week, there's been the sad passing of Haim Topol, best known simply as Topol, who died at the age of 87 following a years-long battle with Alzheimer's. Topol, who's known by many for his performance in The Fiddle on the Roof, playing the role on stage for over 40 years and more than 4,000 performances. It became his signature part, the actor playing it on stages and on film in the 1971 adaptation, which landed him an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe Award. But for people like myself and Lee, it will be films such as Flash Gordon, in which he played Dr. Hans Zarkov, the 1980 sci-fi cult classic, or 
his popping up in 1981's For Your Eyes Only as the helpful Columbo in Roger Moore's most serious and straightforward entry in the series. He had a variety of TV roles cropping up in TV shows such as Sequest, DSV and even Tales of the Unexpected in the 70s in the UK. But it was an actor with a charisma and an on-screen personality that was just vibrant and always drew attention from audiences who caught him. He survived by his wife and three children and it's a sad loss to the world to lose someone to Alzheimer's. A sad passing, but not as sad personally as the next one. And now this one, uh, which has, um, has, has devastated me, and we were about to have him on as a guest, and that is my dear, dear friend, Keith Williams, who passed away suddenly uh, last week. Uh, because of Keith, I know people like Russell Mackay. Uh, I got to know Bruce Robinson, who I spoke to this week. Uh, it's an absolute shock. Um, Keith is not probably a name that you know, but you will recognise his work if you ever, ever watched MTV, especially in the 80s. Uh, Keith was responsible for scripting some of the absolute classics that, that made MTV what it is, which includes the very first video that was ever shown on MTV. Uh, Keith created the concept for that, which was a video killed the radio star. He did Alice Cooper's Man Behind the Mask, uh, the great Billy Idol uh, Dancing With Myself, which was directed by Toby Hooper. Uh, probably the most famous one that he was responsible for was Ghostbusters. Uh, it was an incredibly talented individual and went on to be a scriptwriter. Uh, didn't have the success that he deserved. Uh, he wrote for Russell Mackay, Talos the Mummy. Uh, he was working on several projects uh, until his untimely passing this week. Uh, he was my mentor. He was my best friend. Uh, and I miss him terribly. And so uh, for everybody, and I've been talking to people across the world this week, uh, we, we all loved Keith Williams. And that's the news. For this week so andy sad to say that uh there are people out there who've not subscribed yet to this very podcast i know and we keep telling you how to do it but i, I can only assume that it's not quite sinking in so whilst you're listening right now take out your phone head over to your favorite podcast platform spotify itunes whatever you use search for film file i'll give you a second Okay, it's there. You can see the logo. Yep. Click on subscribe. It's that easy, dude. It's that easy. And <laughs> that way you get us direct to you every week. You don't have to chase us down. You don't have to seek us out. You will get it alerted. You will know when the new episodes drop and you will become part of our big wondrous family. Yeah, as in the in the words family, in a very fast and the furious kind of way. And even a fantastic oh, four kind of a way. You become part of our <laughs> Yeah, family. we'll go with a fantastic four kind of way. Shall we do that? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you can keep in touch with us, as all families should. You can reach us over Facebook. You can get us on Twitter. You can find us on our preferred Mastodon. But just keep in touch. We're all over the socials. We're all over and you can find us. So join us every week. And don't forget, you can also get directly in touch with us via email. Podcast at filmfile.uk is the address to send any of your thoughts, suggestions, ideas. If you want to get in touch for us to talk about a project that you're working on, by all means, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got any ideas for films that you want us to deep dive, let us know. We're always open to looking into films that maybe we've missed or maybe we've not thought about for a while. Podcast at filmfile.uk. And also you can join us on No Barriers Radio every Thursday. Let us into your home. Let us become part of the family. And it's now time for this week's Deep Dive. As you know, we have been looking at deep dives from the year of Andy's birth. And this year, the film stars the legendary Vincent Price. And it is Theatre of Blood from 1973. Edward Lionheart truly believed he was the greatest actor of his time. So when these eight professional critics laughed at his work... Lionheart, what the hell do you want here? Quite insane. It hurt him so deeply. Oh my God! He killed himself. Then a strange thing began to happen. One by one, the critics themselves were murdered. 
Theatre of Blood came out in 1973 and, according to Price himself, is the favourite of all of his films. And what a cast. Dennis Price, his wife Coral Brown, Ian Hendry, Robert Morley and the fabulous Diana Rigg. It was directed by Douglas Hickox and, as we can nicely say, it relishes in a nice bit of Shakespeare. Andy, when we were choosing films, what brought you to this one? I know it's from the year of your birth, but why Theatre of Blood? I grew up watching loads of Vincent Price films on reruns on BBC Two or whatever, loving the over-the-top theatrics and sometimes campy, campy comedy horror approaches that his films took. And I think this one perfectly encapsulates everything that made Vincent Price so great. And it's one that I've not been back to rewatch for at least three decades. And rewatching it, I realised I made the right choice this week because... Boy, this is such a joy, and it was as good a joy as I remembered from my earlier youth. The storyline is that an overlooked actor who believes he should have been awarded for his roles, like doing a whole run of Shakespearean plays, takes revenge on all of the critics who voted against him after he was missing, presumed dead. And it's gloriously fun. It's ridiculously over the top. It's brutal and bloody, but in a jokey schlocky b-movie kind of way but what makes it so much fun is vincent price and like you said this is his favorite film that he delivered himself he got a chance to do shakespeare he always wanted to do shakespeare and in this he gets to recite so many of the key moments from various shakespearean plays and he is eating every piece of scenery as only vincent price ever could around him you've got You've already mentioned some of the cast around him. You know, the great, late, great Diana Rigg. We've we mentioned her, our love for her on the show a few times. But, you know, you've got Jack Hawkins in there, Arthur Lowe, yeah. Eric Sykes, Diana Dawes. This is a who's who of 70s British thespians. You watch this film and you will just be going, that's him from that. That's her from that. That's him from that. Because it, this is the best of British at that time. And I think that this is a film that showcases... It showcases the British comedy horror approach to films the, in the greatest way. Around the same time, you had Hammer Horror churning out like their attempts at like campy, but not quite comedy horrors. But this lent into the camp comedy aspect. It had fun with it, especially when you get to baking pies. Yes. I, I mean, <laughs> each of the deaths in this film, and let's point out the, the original title for this was... Uh, much ado about murder. Each of the deaths are inspired uh, and reference a, a a Shakespearean scene. We've got Julius Caesar, in which the first critic is repeatedly stabbed by a mod of murderous homeless people. Uh, you've got you've got one critic who has his heart removed by Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. Uh, you've got someone who's drawn uh, drowned in a barrel as the Duke of Clarence in Richard III. So there are so many different takes on Shakespeare, and it hams it up perfectly. Uh, and this was Vincent Price coming off the back of the Dr. Phoebes movies. Uh, again, if you've not seen them, check them out. They were wonderful, wonderful uh, horror movies, especially the, the first one, The Abominable Dr. Phoebes. It's just a, a lot of fun. It's, it's not scary. It just relishes on being a, a very tongue-in-cheek, horrific thriller. You have to embrace the silliness of it as well, because when you have... Diana Rigg in disguise with a really bad wig and a moustache and you just look at her going how does anyone think that that's a guy because there's no way that that's a guy at all she's got the worst disguises ever but you go with it because it's it's just right from that starting scene with the Julius Caesar Ides of March stabbings it kind of sets the tone for itself from that point onwards and it's an easy watch it's 104 minutes doesn't feel like it at all and by the end of it, you actually want even more deaths from Shakespearean plays to be represented on screen just to see how creative they are. And that's one thing that's really good about this is how they take the moments from Shakespearean plays and adapt that killing into the modern world. It's smart, it's sharp, and it's gloriously camp. And of course, that reflects me. I'm sharp, I'm smart, I'm gloriously camp. <laughs> <laughs> it is It is a lot of fun. As, uh, and, and I don't think... We got to see Vincent Price just being tremendously uh, Vincent Price in a film where he's he's marvellous in, and he's marvellous in, in most things that he did, but he relishes every scene 
that he's in and it's 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 witty and it's stylish and it uh, it allowed price to walk the line between humor and pathos as uh, as edward Lionheart. it's it's a fantastic did you know andy there was a stage adaptation which starred uh, jim broadbent and Rachel Sterling, Diana Riggs' daughter. Yes, uh, the, the play had a few changes from the film. Uh, the critics are from British newspapers, including The Guardian and The Times. And all the scenes that weren't set within the theatre were dropped. So the killings based on Othello and Cymbeline were remitted because they would have taken place outside the theatre because they wanted to keep it in the theatre feel. And that's a key thing in the film itself. Everything was shot on location, including the theatre scenes. Use the uh, Putney Hippodrome to play, like portray the Burbage Theatre. An old theatre built in 1906, but had been vacant and dilapidated for more than 10 years before it was used in the film. And it was ripped down a couple of years later to make way for housing units. So having a theatre that they could basically just go to town in and do what they wanted because it was going to get torn down anyway, made it so that it wasn't just a dodgy set that you were looking at. It all felt authentic. It all felt real. And it's a beautiful, it's it's one of those classic theatres that you look at and when you realise that they tore it down a few years later, you think, oh, that's such a shame because it reminds me of all those old picture houses and all yeah. the, you know, we've got in Sheffield, the Aberdale Picture House, which it's that kind of restored building and they've, they've yeah. really like kept it. And you feel sorry that we've made way for housing estates with these old architectures that looked amazing. I had a blast watching this this week. I had such a blast. It used to be the. It used to be one of those films that always crop up on uh, uh, on Saturday night on ITV. I've watched it countless times. I didn't watch it again this week, but I, I've watched it countless times. And it's. I, I prefer it to the Doctor Thieves movies, which which are which are good fun. Very similar as well. It is, uh, and it almost pays homage to Doctor Thieves in certain places. Mm. Uh, but it is. It is just a a, a a joy. And Vincent Price is just one of those screen performers, which is just effortless in in his portrayal i mean he's he's just he's just marvelous in it and one of the legacies of this film is that vincent price met his wife to be coral brown after they were introduced by diana rigg uh, she didn't want to do the movie because she thought she was going to do one of those scary vincent price films but she was persuaded to take part because of her friends robert morley and michael gordon and uh, it had an amazing cast the story of this film being the uh, an actor feels that he's been neglected by critics. I just hope that certain actors out there that I've been negative about have never watched this film and never get any ideas. <laughs> as as someone who criticises performances... Zack Snyder's watching it right now. It, it kind of makes you go, okay, maybe I need to be careful. And if someone starts talking Shakespeare to me in future, I'm going to run. Uh, but if you want to find this film, you can find it at this point in time for free on Amazon Prime. That's where they've got quite a good selection of Vincent Price films. So well worth delving into the Vincent Price catalogue through Amazon Prime. And we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for the reviews. So let's start off with the big film of the week. Let's start off with Scream 6. So we know it dominates the box office. But Andy, Scream 6, you've been a fan of the return to the Scream franchise. Is this holding up? It's a shrine. Guys? We've got to lure him in. We execute him. Come on, mother! Scream. It's for you. When you have a franchise like Scream, which every entry tells you the rules of the genre it's riffing on, and then it plays those rules out pretty much to the letter, even when it pretends to break the conventions at times, you start to become used to certain signs and hints as to who the killer is. And this film is no exception. In fact, it didn't take me long to work out the reveal for this film, as the territory we are in, despite the usual scene explaining how the rules of the game have changed now it's a franchise, it's all so familiar. But that doesn't matter when the whole thing is as fun as this was. Tyler Gillett and Matt Bettinelli open, 
returned to direct this follow-on from their hit entry into the franchise last year, as do four of the survivors as the events now shift to New York City, where the Carpenter sisters, Tara played by Jenna Ortega and Sam played by Melissa Barrera, are trying to move on from the trauma of the last film's events, and indeed their connection with all the ghostface killings throughout the years. However, a social media campaign has twisted the truth of the events and put into question whether Sam was a victim or was she the killer herself. And when a new killer appears in New York City, all eyes are on the survivors as potential suspects. This is pretty formulaic stuff. And in addition to the returning new cast from the last film, we also get a return for Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers and Hayden Panettiere as Kirby Reed from the fourth entry. The much-reported absence of Neve Campbell as Sydney doesn't diminish the film. Indeed, her story's been told, so maybe it's time to let that character move on without forcing another reason for her to return. Gail Weathers makes sense due to her journalistic approach, and Kirby is given a strong reason for entering the fray. Scream as a franchise needs to be allowed to grow out with new faces and new stories, and whilst the door is left open for Sydney to return at any point, it's clear that it isn't necessary, as the new cast have it handled and they have so much to tap into for future entries. The killings are as fun and inventive as you'd expect, with setups to play on the tension. The film being set around Halloween, the presence of the ghost face mask is everywhere. There's a fair bit of referencing of the previous films in the series in a very creative manner, and the whole thing holds together well. The final act does feel a tad too stagey at times, and it almost damages the strong setup that came before it, but it reins itself back in for a glorious final confrontation. Scream 6 delivers more of the same as the rest of the series and shows promise for the expanding of the world setting of the films, which has now finally broken free of the echoes of Woodsboro. I still haven't seen the latest in the in the screen movies, and we, we talked about this when you reviewed the last one. So I, I'm going to have to do a bit of a catch-up before I can see this one. A bit like I've got to do a catch-up for Creed that we talked about last week. Uh, a film that I don't think you've got much love for. I don't know why. Just got that spider sense. It's a tingling. That'll be Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Deep in the Hundred Acre Woods, a young boy named Christopher Robin came across some most unusual adolescent creatures. Crossbreeds, who some would describe as abominations. The creatures introduced themselves as Owl, Rabbit, Eeyore, Piglet, and most importantly, Winnie the Pooh. With the naivety of youth, Christopher ignored the dangers and befriended them all. He brought them food, and with each passing day together, their bond strengthened and grew. The days turned to years, and with the years came maturity. Eventually, Christopher had to make the hard decision to leave his friends to attend college to become a doctor, requiring them to fend for themselves once more. Then winter arrived. The nights were deathly cold, the land barren and completely devoid of food. One fateful night, on the brink of starvation, Pooh decided that in order to survive, the group must consume one of their dearest friends. And thus, Eeyore was no more. The trauma of this act warped the minds of the group. They became feral and developed a hatred to all things human. And in particular, Christopher Robin for abandoning them. A pact was made. They renounced their humanity and returned to their animalistic roots, swearing never to talk again. When the rights to the characters in Winnie the Pooh entered public domain, it didn't take long for someone to jump on the idea of making a horror film about the beloved children's characters. Unfortunately, all it manages to demonstrate is that just because you can do something, maybe, just maybe, you should decide not to. Opening with a sketch-drawn animation-style retelling of the Pooh origins, albeit with a darker take, we learn that as Christopher Robin grew older and left for college, his friends at 100 Acre Woods were left to fend for themselves, eventually turning on one of their own through starvation and becoming murdering shadows of their former selves. When Christopher Robin returns to the woods with his fiancée in tow to reunite with his old friends, he finds them completely changed. After the opening moments have played out, 
we're introduced to a group of vacationers who have rented a house next to the woods for a break. And so begins a generic take on the cabin in the woods style of splatter film, only with no budget, no talent and no idea of what it's doing. Let's get this out of the way first. Had this film lent into the silliness of it all and opted for a comedy horror approach akin to films such as Tucker and Dale, it could have been almost watchable. The concept seems to suggest fun, but instead it opts for a wrong turn four level of grittiness and struggles from the start to make you care for any of the protagonists caught up in the mix. It would also have helped had any of the cast attained any semblance of acting talent at any point, or had the script not been packed with some of the tritest dialogue ever committed to film. Bizarre story choices. All the girls hand their phones in to be off the grid, and yet one of them suddenly starts taking photos of herself on her phone a couple of scenes later. The inclusion of a hillbilly redneck garage owner in, checks notes, rural England, or a random captive who knows who Pooh and the gang are, despite us being told that after Christopher left, the animals never spoke again. And some awful environmental choices for scenes. 3am set scene flashback clearly has a lot of bright sunlight behind the curtains of the room. All do nothing to help matters, showing an attention to filmmaking that would make a GCSE film study student struggle to attain a grade. I could spend the whole thankfully short runtime of this film tearing it down for every element within, pointing out every contrivance, every continuity issue, every poorly plotted or paced element of it. But I don't want to waste much more time in thinking about it. Suffice to say, the whole thing is not as fun as the concept would suggest. And even the brutal killings, whilst reasonably presented, have been done so much better elsewhere. Lacking any chills, zero thrills, the whole affair feels mundane and a very hard slog to sit through. On the plus side, any aspiring filmmakers out there can be optimistic that no matter how bad you think your efforts are, you too could get a cinema release. Feeling like it would have sat well amongst the other low-rent brainless fodder that debuts on Shudder, this woeful attempt at a cash grab on the public domain rights makes me want to crowdfund to raise money to prevent other old properties from ever landing in the hands of the general public again. Absolute poo. Now, this is a film that I wanted to get to see, and the snow got in the way of me coming to see it. But then the reviews dropped. Now, I don't always go by reviews, and I thought the trailers landed perfectly. But the fact that they didn't they didn't do any press screenings for it is always it's always a siren, isn't it? To yeah, well, whether a film is trusted to go in front of an audience, and the fact that there was no word of mouth on release date. And then the word of mouth started. And I think the concept is just a superb concept. So, 65. This is Commander Mills. We've crash-landed on an uncharted planet. There's something alien out there. Sixty-five million years ago, a research and exploration vessel from an ancient civilization was caught in an unexpected asteroid event and was forced to crash land on an uncharted planet, planet Earth. The pilot, Mills, played by Adam Driver, finds the world he has crashed on has dangerous creatures, dinosaurs, and chances of survival are low. Initially intending to end his own life, he changes his mind when he discovers another survivor, Koa, played by Ariana Greenblatt, a young girl from another part of his world whose parents died in the crash. The pair must make the way over treacherous terrain, populated with carnivorous dinosaurs and other threats, to get to the remaining escape capsule from their vessel and escape. This is a simple plot. Basically, crash, get from A to B, avoid danger along the way, and as such, it plays into some traditional disaster movie tropes, whereby the threat is amped up at regular intervals to engage the thrills. This feels at times like it's a streaming sci-fi movie, the likes of which Amazon and Netflix pump out each year, offering nothing particularly original, just some typical sci-fi adventure and a small slice of escapism. However, what does lift this somewhat is the central performance from Driver, his character having an emotional backstory that is revealed bit by bit over the course of the film, and the growing surrogate bond between him and Greenblatt's orphan. It's again a trope explored much better elsewhere, Indeed, The Last of Us game and TV series explores this so much better. But thanks to Driver and Greenblatt, it works well enough to let us care for the pair, 
complicating their bond is the fact that they both speak different languages. And so they have to learn how to communicate and the pair play this out well. Indeed, so well is the growing bond between the two played out that I bizarrely started to get annoyed by some of the random dinosaur encounters that felt like they were imposing on the core emotional drama that I was loving. That's not to say those encounters aren't thrilling. They are well put together and the creatures themselves put the recent Jurassic entries to shame on a much lower budget. It's just that they somewhat detract from the emotional core. All that said, at 93 minutes runtime, the film doesn't outstay its welcome. And even though it could have played a little lighter on the number of dinosaurs thrown at the pair, it ticks over well and provides some decent thrills. It's an average experience of a film that won't leave any impact, but with two solid central performances that garner it an extra star on the rating. It might just be that I'd watched Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey just before it, and so it felt so much better. as a result uh, Everything felt better. <laughs> so those are the reviews. What can we expect over the next week? Uh, cinemas this week, it's another busy week for me because we've got Rye Lane, which I've got my eye on. We've got Pearl finally landing in the UK. And we've got Shazam, Fury of the Gods. I am looking forward to Shazam. The word of mouth has been great on Shazam. Yeah, there's been so, some good um, buzz so far. On Now TV and Sky, there's Call Jane lands on there. For the younger viewers, there's Tad, The Lost Explorer and The Curse of the Mummy. And one thing that I've got my eye on is Marlowe. Liam Neeson playing Detective Philip Marlowe, drawn into a mystery when a beautiful blonde hires him to find her ex-lover. Could Liam Neeson pull off that role? Mm, we'll find out. Over on Netflix... There's Magician's Elephant and there's the animated offering Agent Elvis that have kind of got me eye half on. I kind of fancy that. But then, obviously, the big one this week is over on Apple TV Plus because Ted Lasso season three is finally with us. Can't wait. Can't wait. Well, folks, that's it for this week. Thank you for spending an hour or so in the realm of geekness. Uh, but before we go, and of course, if you're a regular listener, you know this, it's our neat things stuff that we've seen read watched eaten you you name it if we think it's neat we're going to tell you andy your neat thing for this week is so i'm heading over to youtube this week oh i was there last week for mine <laughs> i've been following these pretty much since they started off back in 2011 with their occasional sketches based around video game culture etc but viva la dirt league have really really excelled in recent weeks and if you've never checked them out they are huge gamer, gaming nerds, as you can tell, but they do sketches. They're a com group of professional sketch comedy YouTubers, Rowan Benjamin, Alan Morrison and Adam King, who take on some other regular cast who like circulate around. And they do sketches either based on video game logic. So player unknown battle battlegrounds logic or NPC man, which is an MMO RPG like World of Warcraft or recently. And the one that's really tapped into everything that I love, the survival game logic, where they lovingly mock okay. the aspects of those video games that every player has encountered. They did a whole series of Red Dead Redemption ones, including um, mocking the character generation for the online section that you could only ever make ugly characters because it's impossible to get anyone looking good in that game. <laughs> but it's so much fun. Each one of their series is that they do sporadically over a couple of years really makes you go, I've encountered that. I've encountered that. They're ones about like the World of Warcraft kind of setting with quests such as go and gather 400 mushrooms and things like that absolutely taps into all the logic of it. And their survival one at the moment with them trying to create tools by just looking at rocks and then bashing things together and then all of a sudden an axe pops up absolutely picks up on every nuance of the gaming thing. They also do board which is a series of sketches which is based within a computer store and deals with retail culture and IT tech support culture. All of their stuff is at least amusing, but at times it's belly-bursting hilarious. The cast are all great. They also did one last week, which was a, a boomer dad, and I'm hoping we see more of that character later down the line. His son is trying to tell him that he loves him, and boomer dad is like, oh, oh, bloody good, bloody good. Um, um oh, the battery needs changing on there, and trying to move away from emotion because boomer dads don't do with emotion very well. And I watched that and just thought, oh, my dad was like that the first time I tried to hug him. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Viva La Dirt League. They're over on YouTube. They've also got a very prominent fa Facebook page where they post all their videos anyway. Get them followed. Dig into it because you'll definitely, if you're a gamer like me, you'll find stuff that you will be able to spot, reflect, and go, oh, yes, that's spot on. For me, this week, I have read and finished Roshark by comic book writer 
Tom King and drawn by Jorge Perez. Now, I'm not a big fan of what DC did, trying to monetize uh, The Watchmen. I thought it stayed in the realms, it should have stayed in the realms of, of Alan Moore. The before Watchmen, I thought was a huge mistake. Jeff Johns's uh, Doomsday Clock was a, an atrocious attempt to tie the Watchmen into the DC universe. Um, and so I approached this one only because of writer Tom King, who I think is a phenomenal writer and loved everything that he's done. 35 years after the death of Rorschach and one year after the death of Dr. Manhattan, an unnamed homicide detective investigates the crimes committed by a comic book creator who has assumed the identity of the Rorschach mantle. Uh, yes, it is a sequel of sorts to Alan Moore's and Dave Gibbons' uh, legendary series, but also uh, it works as a kind of a prequel to the television series uh, that came out a couple of years ago, created by Damon Lindelof. It's it's a, a really good read. It's uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, it felt like a true sequel of sorts to Watchmen and dealt with a lot of the same issues. It's very meta, what we fact one of the characters is, uh, the great Frank Miller, beautifully drawn, has a sort of 1970s earthy detective feel to it. And as I said, I'm no fan of what DC have done to Watchmen by trying to incorporate into parts of the DC universe. But this is a great standalone book. Uh, you can get it as a limited series or you can get it as a published graphic novel. And I suggest you do it that way because you cannot put it down once you start reading it. And that, folks, is it for this week's difficult show for me to get through. Uh, we got there. Um, couldn't do the show without the other guy at the end of the other microphone. Um, Andy, thank you very much for writing, producing, and probably doing just about everything cleaning up after me in many ways than one. You know how much I love this. Uh, and again, condolences for the news this week, mate. We'll be back again next week with more reviews, hopefully including Pearl and Shazam. I have of late, wherefore I know not lost all of my mirth.